Hello, Valparaiso. This is Allison Schutte. And Liz Werfel. And J.P. Avila. And you're listening to... Welcome Project Radio. The Welcome Project collects first-person stories and pairs them with facilitated conversations to help participants forge stronger ties within and across communities. We vision a world in which people are curious about and actively seek to engage those who are different from themselves. We are proudly underwritten by Asana Yoga Center and Roots Market Cafe, located downtown and online at asanacenter.com and rootsmarketcafe.com. And thanks to Kelly and Michael Marachna, who believe in supporting diversity, learning, and growth. The theme music is provided by WVLP's very own Paul Schreiner. Thanks, Paul, and hi. So today, we will be playing two stories from the Welcome Project archive, Remember Where You Came From, and My Father Had to Take On Two Jobs. The power of reflecting on our roots, as indicated by our first story's title, Remember Where You Came From, is a practice at the heart of the Welcome Project. So we hope that in providing these two stories of people reflecting on family and early ways of coming into being in place and relationship, um, we'll produce some provocative conversation for you, our dear listeners. And I am super excited today to have two guest hosts. So my typical cohort is uh, dispersed a little bit around the country. So I invited a co-director of the Welcome Project, Liz Werfel, who is currently in Tacoma, Washington with her bestie, J.P. Avila. Um, And we are super excited to have J.P. with us. J.P., you've been a part of the Welcome Project before in terms of helping us with flight paths, which which is our Northwest Indiana Oral History Initiative. Um, You played a a key role in helping us think about graphic design for that interactive documentary website, which has not yet come to be, but you were a really important component of conversation we were having about what does it mean to visualize this history of our region. So delight to have you here with us today. Thank you, Allison. So listeners, you know our standard methodology here. We will play one of our stories and then we will have a conversation that begins with what do we think the storytellers care about? What do we hear them really bringing to the forefront? And then we'll also throw in our reactions to those um, stories and the thoughts that they have. So let's jump in with the first story. Does that, does that make sense? Sounds good. Okay, so this is called Remember Where You Came From, and this is from our Flight Paths Initiative. Um, I hate to be biased, but it's certainly one of my favorite storytellers. <laughs> and she's thinking here about um, her, her mother and brother in particular and their life together in Gary, Indiana. I say uh, to my grandkids all the time, you can never forget who you are but you have to remember where you come from. You know what the WPA is. It was a work program that Roosevelt set up for the people because it was during the Depression. I always tell everybody I'm a Depression baby because I was born in 1929. And my mother was a trained welder. They sent her to school. She had certificates and everything. She thought when she came here, she would go to the mill and get a job. They would not hire her. The only job that she would be able to get would be a job as a cook or a cleaning. She said, no, thank you. And that's when she took the two jobs, cleaning houses and waitressing. I counted one time. I sat there and watched her. She took orders from five tables. When she came back, not one person got the wrong drink or the wrong dish. She, she went up this high for me when I saw her do that because I didn't think, I, I, I was sitting there wondering, how do you remember her? She said, oh, you do it. You just learn how to do it, that's all. I often wondered, <laughs> how far she would have gone if she had had the opportunities that are open for us now. 
no telling where she would have went. I had a brother. He was born here in Gary. As he, we got older, I had to babysit him naturally. I was at home, and there was a young man that would always come by, which I did not like, period. I said, Billy, you tell him I'm not at home. <laughs> and I went in the bedroom and stood with the door open, and he opens the door, and what does he say? <laughs> She said to tell you she's not at home. <laughs> oh, I was ready to kill him. <laughs> so I had to go out, shamefaced and all, and said, I'm sorry, but I'm, I'm not going anywhere. I'm babysitting, period. <laughs> Whatever I learned to do in school, like if it was sewing or cooking something to cook, I had to come home and teach him. If he was in carpenter shop or any other shop that I couldn't do, he had to come home and teach me. And my aunt was a good cook. She made the best lemon pie in the world. And I could never make that lemon pie. He comes home one day, because he was in the service. I said, I sure wish I had one of Aunt Mamie's pies. And she said, which one are you talking about, B? I said, I'm talking about that lemon pie, you know, the one with the thick meringue on it. And she did not use an egg beater to make that meringue. She used a fork. He goes in the kitchen. He didn't tell me what he was doing. He went in there. <laughs> And he made that pie. I've been trying to make that lemon pie for I don't know how long. How come you got to make it? And he laughed and he hugged me. He said, because I paid attention and you didn't. <laughs> yeah, my brother and I were good friends. I was sorry when he passed. He was in the Vietnamese War and he got sprayed with that Agent Orange. When he came home, he wasn't feeling like he usually did. I told, called and told him that I was going to come to see him because he was sick. And he said, okay. And the nurse said, uh, I'm holding the phone so he can talk to you, okay? I said, okay. And when I got there, he had already passed. Yeah, I lost both of them, my brother and my mother. This is WVLP 103.1 FM and streaming online at WVLP.org. And I'm Allison Schutte, your host of Listen Up Welcome Project Radio here with two guests today, one of whom should be very familiar to many of you, our co-director Liz Werfel, and then um, J.P. Avila, who's not a stranger to Valparaiso, Indiana, because also attended the university here for his undergraduate degree but they are both currently zooming in from Tacoma, Washington. So I just wanna begin with initial impressions that stood out for each of you from the story. Some of the key moments that maybe you're still smiling about or remembering in some fashion. And JP, I'll just, I'll just turn to you first. Yeah, I think that um, stories like that of any childhood memory or of any memory of food are ones that, you know, of course you bring up that same sort of um, sensory feeling or a similar situation in which you remember a sibling or a cousin or, or someone who you hoped would have your back, but just didn't have it in the right way. And, uh, you know, I, I'm certainly thinking about that. And, and of course my grandmother, who was uh, a cook in our family and, mm had ways in which she cooked that I tried to mimic. And, and then as I got older, making food that she liked that she could never mimic, but definitely appreciated. So, yeah. Uh, JP, what do you think from that story of the pie? Like, how did that recreating that recipe matter to our storyteller? Like, what did you hear her celebrating there? Oh, I think definitely the 
both the memory of her aunt, um, the memory of her childhood or of her youth, but also I think an appreciation for her brother who could do it so well uh, and with such ease. And after so many years of taking her back to that moment in which she had that happiness, that, that nostalgia that is built into whipping meringue by hand <laughs> or with a fork, whipping it with a fork that still um, astounds me because you know, I'm a, a child of the eighties, but uh, I certainly appreciate all modern technology gadgets. <laughs> and for me, whipping meringue is, you know, a, a couple of maybe one or two minutes of, of on number 12 on the blender or, or the, the stand mixer. And to think about that, it's just like, that is phenomenal. That is that's a major science right there. <laughs> I think that uh, B has a way of of bringing you into the story, both with her um, the happiness and the joy at that moment with the pie that she is recalling it, both when she was in that moment and taking us out into this this very minute in which she is conveying it back to us. Um, so you can tell that it's it's definitely a happy thought for her. Yeah, I really loved that that point too, that place in the story, and what also preceded it with uh, whatever I learned to do in school, sewing or cooking. Right, those are the home ec courses for for girls. I had to come home and teach him, and you know what, uh, he was yeah. in carpentry shop or whatever it would be that she couldn't be in. And so he taught her, I think that is so awesome. Yeah, definitely. Just such a great way of not only sharing skill sets, but kind of breaking gender norms within their own family. Yeah. My grandmother has a story similar to that, where her grandfather and grandmother raised her and her grandfather was a, you know, just a handyman. Uh, he sold fruit, um, but would come home and, you know, fix the house. And re would require my grandmother to uh, help him out and get on the top of the roof and learn to shingle a roof and, mm -hmm. and, you know, learn all the different things that one would consider to be uh, gendered towards boys and, and not to girls. And yet there she was. And, and it definitely helped her perspective of what she needed to pass on and the importance of passing on mm -hmm. knowledge, I think mm -hmm. was, was um, important to her. Well, I love the irony that it's her brother that bakes the pie. <laughs> so I guess those lessons that B brought home worked in some form or fashion because he's the better pie maker, at least. Yeah. It also takes me back to the beginning of the story, which I'm always delighted by as well. Well, both delighted and heartbroken because the mother is trained to be a welder during the Works Progress Administration, WPA. And the fact that she in, seems to enjoy it so much that she won't take a job cook as a cook or cleaning, I think speaks a lot to something about the pride in maybe crossing gender norms to learn a skill that's supposedly beyond you. And I, I don't know, I'm curious, like, because I, I found myself thinking this time listening, I wonder why the mother was willing to take the job as a waitress. I, in some ways, put that together with cook and cleaner, but I think there's some, there's clearly some difference. And I wonder what you two think it is. I have an idea, but I'm curious if you, like, how would you talk about the difference between being a cook or a cleaner and then waitressing? I mean, for me, I think the, the thought was that she specifically went to the mill to get a job doing what she was trained to do. And they said, no, your your role can only be a cook or a cleaner, right? And to take that job there would be, I think, to say, I have to give up the skill set that I was trained in at an institution and an industry that has that job. And so I feel like the decision to take, you know, cleaning houses and waitressing, although the tasks might be similar, there's a kind of independent spirit still within that, that says, well, you, you know, you, this industry can't tell me what I can't do. I'm going to decide on my own. Yeah. I, I was thinking something very similar to that to give herself agency back in her choices. Um, she 
said no to that job of not being able to, to become a welder and instead a cook or a cleaner. Yeah. And instead she made the choice on her terms to do it. Um, but I'd be curious as to if there, if there was a unique distinction or if it was just a matter of um, convenience or of time or of situation, continuing to try to be a welder, couldn't find that. And um, these are the jobs that are available. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Maybe it was closer to home. Maybe it was um, flexible hours. Yeah. I had missed that. She is not only waitressing, but cleaning houses. Cause then that choice becomes even, I don't know, either more stark, like in the terms you're thinking, Liz, of like, it was the mill that was saying, well, you can cook here or you can clean here, but you can't weld here. And then refusing that. So even if she is cleaning elsewhere, it's on her own terms. I think that's the language you used. I was thinking in terms of waitressing, additionally, that it's a it's public space, right? And if you're cooking and cleaning in somebody's home, there's a sense in which you're being a servant to a family. And I think waitressing has some more, you're not beholden to a single employer. I mean, I guess it's the restaurant, but like your clients are changing all the time and who you're interacting with is changing all the time and how you're compensated on tips and stuff is changing based on who you're interacting with and, and how you do that. So I thought waitressing might have some different quality of dignity to it for the mother. Yeah. I think a lot about that, that phrase, she says, she said, no, thank you. And the way B says it, and it reminds me of a couple other stories we have from her where she herself is doing that similar thing in her own job and career uh, where, you know, she's, she's basically saying to the places where she's working, you know what, I am, I'm not going to do what you're saying of me, or I'm going to find another job because you're not respecting me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This is WVLP 103.1 FM streaming online as well at wvlp.org. This is Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio. I'm Allison Schutte here with Liz Warfel and JP Avila. And today our first story is from one of our beloved storytellers in the flight path story. And she's reflecting on her mother and how her understanding, relationship, respect for her mother changed in watching her work and then her relationship with her, her brother too. I mean, I think the other thing that really strikes me from the first part of this story is how B watches. Um, so it's partly B's attention, like her ability to notice the skill that her mom brings to this job of waitressing. And it's also about the, the actual skill of waitressing. I think for people who've never been in that service industry, it can be hard to recognize all the talent, intelligence, that goes into that kind of work. Um, and I taught a, an article this summer to one of my classes by Mike Rose, who was commenting on his mother as a waitress too, and how all of the communication skills, the social skills, the organizing skills, the actual physical capacity that goes into the work that we tend to undervalue as a society. So I love that she raises that up about her mom here. And I think it's telling, like you said, Liz, that when we hear B talk about her life as an employee later, that she has actually remembered where she came mm -hmm. from mm -hmm. and, and learned, learned that. Do either of you want to comment on this middle part of the story where her <laughs> brother <laughs> is communicating to the prospective boyfriend? <laughs> <laughs> anything there that such a jerk move out? by the brother i love it <laughs> do you think he knew what he was doing oh i mean i don't know i think i think so because b says oh i was ready to kill him <laughs> i think that he was too young to understand the complexity of <laughs> this kind of cat and mouse this you know a, a little push and pull dance that she was playing with her suitor here. <laughs> and he broke that magic of uh, she's unavailable. It was more of like, she's not coming. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> she she wanted me to tell you that. 
I think that that was, uh, to me, I thought it was a, a cute little uh, reminder of the ways in which we talk to children. And, you know, I, I have a, a daughter and when she was little, I used to give her lines to say in, in, and, you know, my wife knew that I was feeding her these lines every once in a while she would say, well, dad said that I should say that, you know, like, no, no, no. The, the mystery is if you say it, like it's new, you know? <laughs> yeah. I'm with JP where I gave the little brother the benefit of youth. The, the fact that this memory has stayed, stayed so strongly with, with B, I, I can feel her reddening. Like when she says I had to go out shamefaced. faced, <laughs> yes. I feel like it's another central moment of learning for her too, to be later in life, really direct with people yeah. instead yeah. of looking for the, the way out the softer, gentler way. This really, this really is a story for me about, you know, inhabiting your dignity, kind of understanding that you're not a small person, you know, even if the world kind of wants to make you small, whether it's mm-hmm. gender roles or socioeconomic status or something like that, there's this like ability to stand in your full presence. Um, and that's hard to learn. I'm trying to learn it still at 52. So it took a lot I'm, of I'm curious encouragement. If, um, I'm curious if the way that you all were, um, talking with her if there was an undertone about learning because each of these little segments is in in the sense how she has learned or what she has learned you know the top is about learning from her mother watching her mother take orders and it be perfect and she just knows it like how do you do that what's a what you know what, what was the mystery what was the formula and her mother saying you just you just learn it um and then with her brother learning that you can't trust the little kid to do the job <laughs> that she is, you know, set up to do, and then learning uh, or not learning how to make that lemon meringue cake or lemon meringue pie that her brother learns because he paid attention. You know mm-hmm. that, that little jab at the end, like, well, I just, I just <laughs> actually paid attention. <laughs> if there was uh, a bit of of tones to that, that you know, you could see go through some of her conversations. Yeah, I'm trying to think. I mean, so much, so much of it was a very long interview and so fascinating. Uh, I think so much of it, what came later, was rooted in this in these early memories, like Allison's talked about, where the learning she's doing here is then applied later in life, and she's sharing all of that with us. And we had a student there, so. Yeah. Really with, with two, two more generations that she's sharing this with. Yeah. Yeah. I was definitely remembering that we had um, a, a Valparaiso college student with us and there's, a, this is not in this edited story, but there's another edited story we have of B where she says something like, and I know, you know, and she's looking at the African-American student who's with us. And then she turns and looks at me and says, and I know, you know, and she's definitely commenting on race at that point, as well as maybe age, just bringing, she's very, she was very aware, I think, in that interview of who she was talking to, um, both individually and kind of collectively, and um, was really savvy about <laughs> understanding what different pieces her audiences needed to like clarify or what she needed to emphasize in her own story for her different audiences. Yeah. She's such an amazing storyteller. Uh, you know, not everybody has that skill and yeah. she just, she just has it. It's such a delight to hear her. Yeah. And I feel like it's a, it's an art form that we don't encourage enough anymore. The, the long form story in which we are captivated by our history by the lessons learned and the opportunity to not make the same mistakes or to, um, to build from. Whereas now I feel like it has to be instantaneous. We want the gratification of what we learn immediate at the forefront of the narrative, as opposed to the, the long story. And then the, the understanding of how the complexity is translated into 
to an answer mm. into um, a lesson learned. Yeah, that's nicely put and is a good argument for <laughs> the work of something like the Welcome Project. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And any, I mean, there are so many storytelling projects beyond ours. Um, I am curious how did you all respond to the end, the sort of poignancy at the moment, at the moment of how we ended the story, which is through editing, obviously. It's not yeah. where her interview ended with us, but how did it land with you, this reality of her brother's death? Mm, I mean, it, yeah, I think for me, it's poignant, sad. Uh, the spirit is still there. I mean, she's focusing on these two people who really shaped her, but it's hard not to think. They could, they could have, I mean, her mother would have passed by the time we talked to B because B, I think was 94 when we interviewed her, mm. uh, but the brother could well have been alive still. And so to feel a little bit through her voice in particular, that feeling of separation from someone she really loves, yeah. I, I definitely felt it. Yeah. I, I am curious though, you know, thinking about, I, I was ready for the story to end after the brother's um, little swipe of, I'm, because I'm better at paying attention, I was ready for that to, to end on that kind of note of, of levity and for it to continue on with that epilogue of uh, what happened to the brother made me interested in what happened to the rest of the family, what happened to the mom, how did the mom pass away? What, what was the rest of the career like? Um, we learned that the brother grew up, was in the war, um, obviously had some um, some medical issues that came from that. I wonder if the mother ever was able to weld, um, able to use that skill in any way moving forward before her passing. Yeah, it's interesting because as editors, we could have ended the story with the happy laughter of, you know, being one-upped by your brother who paid attention to how the aunt mm -hmm. made yeah. the pie. I do think that there's some echo of the mother's pain at not being allowed to be what she'd been trained to be yeah. in the sun, you know, fighting this war under which you don't have agency in your life as a soldier. And in this case, being sprayed with Agent Orange. So yeah. there is a kind of bookend or frame around the the happier moments in between but yeah I also I think there's just a tenderness in her yeah I lost them both um yeah that was too hard to edit out <laughs> mm -hmm. or leave out leave behind oh definitely know, I, mean, I think it, it's that moment in which she is sharing something with her palms opened to you and mm -hmm. it, it would be hard to say that you can't use that because that's not the dynamic that we're looking for. It was almost um, even more vulnerable to have her come to you with that moment of here's what happens to him. You know, he was a great person, a deer in her life, and I lost him too early. Mm -hmm. And to feel that as part of both her parents or both her mother and her brother's story, I think, um, while changing the tone, I think it was important to really become invested in it emotionally. This is WVLPLP at 103.1 FM in Valparaiso, community-supported radio, also streaming live from WVLP.org. We at the station rely on donations from individuals, businesses, and other organizations in order to continue to spread the word that ongoing, volunteer-driven local media leads to a better community. Please consider supporting the station by visiting our website, wvlp.org backslash support. Donations are tax-deductible, and we at The Welcome Project would sure appreciate it. And as a reminder, you're here with me, Allison Schutte, and today I have two guest hosts, Liz Werfel and J.P. Avila. Whoop, whoop, whoop. <laughs> hello, hello. And today on Listen Up, we have been discussing remembering your roots and how acknowledging, honoring that impact on us, and also thinking of, of how we take we take that forward into our, our current life. 
So unless there was something that we didn't get a chance to say before we move on, otherwise I'll, I'll play My Father Had to Take On Two Stories. Yeah, sounds good. Okay. So this is a story that is from our campus collection, but has resonance far beyond um, Valparaiso University. And during Hispanic Heritage Month, actually, it's a really good time to be bringing this story forward too. So again, this is called My Father Had to Take On Two Jobs. Well, my family was all born in Mexico in the town of Querétaro. And when I was born, they decided to come to the United States for a better future, but mostly to work. My mom growing up was very loving. Um, I think she took pride in her kids because that's the only thing she had here besides my father. Uh, my father, he had to take on two jobs. So he was very busy and I wouldn't really see him during the day. It was maybe in the morning um, if I woke up early enough and I saw him going off to work and he would come back at like midnight. So he would be gone basically all day. I remember that after high school, I was always a good student, but it was during my senior year in high school that I, start, I started seeing everybody else applying to schools and get really excited about what schools they were going to go to. But that wasn't really an option for me, knowing that I wasn't going to receive um, any federal aid. And I knew that I still wanted to continue studying, but I just didn't have the same options as my friends. So I decided to enroll in, in the community college. And a lot of people mocked it as the college, college of last chance. <laughs> Even when I was going to get my associate's degree, and I was so close to obtaining it, I didn't know whether I would be able to transfer because even more for me, it was a financial strain on my family knowing that I wouldn't receive any federal aid. So I started doing research on my own, looking at scholarships, um, looking at what schools I could apply to, and kind of easing my parents into it. Although my mom, she would always be really supportive of me. She wanted me to continue, but it was a little bit harder for my dad because he was uh, the one making the most money. And it, it made me feel bad to have to ask him for his, um, his support in, in that way, because he's always worked really hard and I feel like he's given me as much as he can. I, um, I started telling him at schools I was looking at, and this was obviously a school I was looking at because it was two hours from home, so it was close enough where I knew that my parents could come visit if I wanted them to. And he was very, um, he was like very proud of me at that point, and I remember that he started crying. He started crying because he just didn't know if he could afford it. And I remember that um, when he, he started becoming more involved, he, he uh, took a weekend off and we visited schools that I had been accepted to. But he would never say much. He would just kind of look around and I could start seeing my mom would, was the one that was getting very, um, very excited for me. She obviously wanted me to continue. And my dad did too, but in a different way. Um, he wouldn't show it the same way. It was about three weeks before the semester would start, the fall semester would start, and the advisor I had spoken to here kept getting in contact with me, asking me whether I was gonna come here or not. They needed to know. I asked my dad and my mom whether I was gonna do it or not, and they just said yes. Although they didn't know exactly how they would work it out. Um, um, so I made the decision to come here like two weeks before the semester started, and I had nothing. I gathered everything. Um, it was a rush. It was just a mess. Um, but I came, and um, I remember, because obviously I, I did get some help financially, but it didn't cover everything. And my dad ended up taking, because I couldn't take out student loans, he ended up taking a loan from his 401k, um, and that's the way he was able to help me. And although I thought that my parents would come um, to visit, they didn't come and visit as much as I wanted to because also like the gas money or just coming out here sometimes with work, it wouldn't work, it didn't work out as much. 
Um, and that was my first year here. This is WVLP 103.1 FM in Valparaiso and streaming online at WVLP.org. This is Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio with me, Allison Schutte, and my co-host today, Liz Werfel and J.P. Avila. So this is our second story for this theme of remembering, paying attention to our roots and what we learn from how we're raised and our families. Um, Liz, do you want to start this time with just some initial things that are sticking with you from the storyteller? Yeah, I'm, I'm also thinking about the interview itself, which we were both part of, and how much she struggled sharing this story um, at one point. You know, we actually paused the camera. I think we can feel that in the story itself as it's edited here, uh, but the kind of intensity of reliving, remembering that experience of the first year at Valparaiso and even preceding that, the kind of things le leading up to that choice in the end. Uh, but I think what has always been really curious to me about this story is the difference of her experience of her parents' response to her decision to look at Valpo and how excited her mom is and how quiet her dad is. I think I've chalked that up to the just the understanding that the dad was going to be the one ultimately, I mean, I, I don't know in terms of making the decision, but certainly in terms of being the one to have to take up the burden of paying for it. And I kind of get the sense from the storyteller that at least in her own processing of it, the mother can be excited and she herself is curious and thinking about what is my dad thinking in these moments of quiet and the burden that my choice is putting on him while at the same time understanding how much he must love and want to support his daughter to, to do something like, you know, work more and take out your retirement. That's a huge commitment. Yeah. I was thinking about that too. I wrote, wrote down, uh, he never says much. And uh, underneath that I put, uh, does he belong? And I wrote that down because I was reminded of a similar situation that I've seen uh, when I used to be in academia, but also um, in my family. There's a moment in which you realize you have kind of outgrown the family you live in, or you have outgrown the situation in which you were born into. And I think that the father might have had that situation where he's looking around, can see her future. And he knows that he is not part of that. He, he's not up on the, the ivory tower. Um, he sees this as both her future and something that he can never understand, not something that he could never be involved in. He has no frame of reference to that, um, which is probably also an, another part in which she probably understands that as well. Thinking back in this, in this history of it, that, he made this ultimate sacrifice, this this huge um, movement away from his own future to, and in order to give her so much more for her own future inside of that. And probably the brevity of it was partially the tears as well um, and the support that her father made in, in doing that. Hmm. I think it's an, an interesting perspective to see a... Uh, a first-generation student tell their story like that and to to experience it similar in that, you know, I came from an, a very not wealthy family and my parents did what they could in order to get me to get into Valpo and then eventually into grad school. And then eventually, you know, like you see the generations that they they do what needs to be done in order to move things forward. And it's that kind of responsibility that I think that each generation should have of the future generation. What can we do to make things better? And what sacrifice, what sacrifice do we make in order for that? Because it shouldn't always be about the here and now of what can I get out of this, but what can I leave for the next person? 
Yeah, I really appreciate all of that. It, it makes me conscious too of how it took me longer to recognize the impact that my parents' sacrifices had on me. Like it, it was not the same kind of situation as the storyteller by any means. But you know, my I come from a family of five kids, and my mom waited to go back to work until my sister, my youngest sister, the youngest in the family was going off to kindergarten in order to make sure that my brother and I, who were both college age at that time, like could get the Pell Grants and stuff, you know, like she wanted to keep, she is like this weird balance of like keeping the family income low enough (laughs) to be able to get the most financial aid, but not too low. That you weren't able to support your family. Um, And the job that my mom took was third shift. And so I was half cognizant of this at the time, like being (laughs) sort of the self-centered adolescent that adolescents tend to be, or at least this one. Yeah. Like I knew my mom was losing sleep, not getting as much sleep um, at the time, but like it hit me later. Like I was probably in my thirties when I was like, holy cow, like, really the small amount of sleep that she was getting by on with three kids still at home and two off in college. And, you know, and here we have this student who's uh, interviewing with us when she's a senior that's already understanding, like, really the quality of sacrifice that her family has made. And we've heard this in some of our other first generation stories, too. It places an extra responsibility or or burden even on the student themselves. Um, And I don't know if that extra burden is cultural because if you come from like even a lower middle-class status, like my family, you can afford as the student, as the child to be ignorant of your parent sacrifice in a way that if you're, you know, working class or working poor, maybe you can't but yeah, there's that extra kind of like, I have to have to live up to the sacrifice that my parents made now. Yeah, um, I feel, feel that very much in this story. There's a component of that that I think is embedded in many first generation students, college students that are starting off. I've seen that in a variety of different ways in which it is the importance of the grades. Um, it is the importance of how close like this um, story was about two hour, a two hour proximity. So the way the parents can, can visit, but I've seen it before where I needed to take this, this degree and at this school, because I need to still help out at home and I need to commute and I need to take care of my siblings and so forth. I think there's definitely a high toll that is not financial, but rather emotional and physical and mental and spiritual that definitely first-generation students pay, and they pay it gladly in order for to move the family along. And I, I think that's also important, too, is that they take on that responsibility. That, I mean, how adventurous, how brave and courageous to be the first to do something that the rest mm-hmm. of the family has not mm-hmm. done. Um, and to place that burden upon one individual or the beginning of one individual um, is also just all inspiring. Yeah, I think that's an important point that you made too, that it's not just bringing the individual student forward, right? There's very much the sense that it's bringing the family forward too, um, even as the family understands that they're pushing you forward. (laughs) So there's a little bit more collective action that's going on than at least the kind of quality of culture I was raised in where it was very much more individual driven. Yeah, I think about that also in the you know, toward the end when she talks about wanting to be at Valpo because it's only two hours away and that might mean that her parents can visit more often. And just thinking how many of the students at Valpo and other universities and colleges, particularly students who are more privileged, who are like, I want to get far away from my family <laughs> and I 
the last thing I would think about is them coming to visit me. Like I could go to their house to do my laundry or to get some cash or to get taken out to dinner or have a home cooked meal. But for them to come onto campus and hang out with me, (laughs) that is such a different and lovely, I mean, especially in hindsight, like thinking for me, I don't know if I would have wanted my parents to come hang out with us, Um, but now I would. Right. (laughs) So kind of, again, that sense of she understands things that for other people might take a lot longer to get to. Yeah. This is WVLP 103.1 FM and streaming online at WVLP.org. I'm Allison Schutte, your host for Listen Up Welcome Project Radio today with Liz Werfel and JP Avila. And we've been talking about our second story, who's... um, roots lie in Mexico and her family coming here when she was fairly young. Um, And then she's reflecting mostly on her life as a student graduating from high school and then entering the world of college and how she navigates that all. Um, I think JP, you wanted to say something. Yeah. I was just going to mention the comment that she made about community college or the, mm. the comment that was made to her about community college, that it was somehow less than um, a university or a, a higher level, a baccalaureate um, institution. I, I'm curious if there was any other conversation about that with her um, that was either not captured or edited out of that community college is one of those things where I'm beginning to see a, a much more important place for it as the cost of uh, education is getting higher and higher, that there is a great opportunity for community colleges in a variety of different uh, fields to play an important role in a student's career. Yeah. I, I mean, I remember from the interview, there wasn't much more about it than than this. I think we did talk a bit about that experience of staying home. But I think for me, that most important part of her knowing that that's where she needed to be uh, financially and, and maybe also just proximity to family, but that they, they call it the college of last chance. Like what a terrible, terrible thing to say. And to have that be the culture of the high school that she was in, not understanding that, you know, any, any way you can grow and learn is good. And not everybody does it through college. Not everybody does it through a four-year private college. Uh, lots of different ways of doing that. But to mock the choice yeah. of people who go to community college. Yeah. Thinking back to my uh, days as a uh, professor, I feel like those who took the time to uh, work on some of those general education requirements and were able to mature and think through their reasons for going into academia definitely became much more curious, much more uh, attuned to why they were there and what they were trying to get out of it, mm-hmm. as opposed to it was what mom and dad said. It was because this is what we always do. It's because you know, it was, it was a popularity game, whatever the reason I feel like a community college is, is such a great avenue for beginning to think through a future, beginning to, to invest in an opportunity for, for education or to, to learn that there is another avenue, you know, a, a trade college, a trade school, um, going right into the workforce. There is a, a high need and demand, especially right now for tradesmen and, and craftspeople to work and understand and, and be mentored and apprenticed under those that have had decades of a career that we just are, are losing because there's this idea that if it's a four, it, it's only a four-year degree or nothing. Sometimes a two-year degree of really understanding a, a much more broader underst- a broader knowledge base and then diving into something else later on was would probably serve so many more people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's definitely true, especially as I've seen some students, and this probably doesn't matter, you know, if you're first generation or your parents had gone to college, but with the 
mental well-being that some students are struggling with and anxiety and perfectionism and I've just seen too many students get caught in like that cycle of they're good students and then they for whatever reason freeze and can't get their work in on time and they fall behind and then they just never quite catch up and then they're dropping out of school after two years with like huge amounts of loan and debt um, that really like entering college at a different pace would probably have served them in a much better way. Yeah, definitely. I don't know if this is going too far backwards, but I wonder because we only played the story once, do you think our listeners will understand why her parents cannot afford or will not be given federal aid? Like maybe we should make that more obvious. What do you, how did you all understand that? Like why she wasn't getting able to get federal aid? Right. I'm pretty sure she says it right up front. Isn't it that she's undocumented? Yeah. She doesn't say it explicitly in this story, although we have a companion story where she talks about the American Dream Act and DACA and the need for reform, immigration reform. But I think the clues are there. So Everyone was born in Mexico, came here for a better future, but mostly to work. And then the signals that federal aid is not, not a, yeah, not an option. Yeah. Um, and so then I wonder if there are ways in which you hear this story really countering some stereotypes that are pretty prominent in America right now about undocumented workers or undocumented families. I think the there so there's the family portion of it that gets me in you know in this deep heartfelt place, and then there is the side of it that is about institutions and the United States government and the mentality of that we have toward things like community college that get me in the heart or mind in a different way, like an angry, (laughs) why, you know, why is this still the case that we don't understand that people come to the United States for better opportunity and education is part of that path. Work options are part of that path, right? Uh, Family together is part of that path. And so all of those are threaded through here. Um, And it, I mean, it would be interesting to, to, also play that second story, which we don't have time for today, but people could find it on our website at welcomeproject.valpa.edu. <laughs> uh, but to have that kind of larger understanding of the system and what's broken. And I see, think we see in here places where it's broken that she's signaling to, but not talking about in this one because it's about her family. Yeah. And I think this is certainly due to my ignorance as well. And maybe ways that I've passively taken on the bias or prejudice against undocumented peoples. But, you know, the fact that her dad has a 401k, (laughs) like there's this impression I get from the way media presents undocumented workers that it's this kind of cash economy or something, you know, like, and I think her story really points to the way in which undocumented workers are just workers and there are ways in which they're contributing taxes and building what wealth they can through things like 401k if they're at a job that you know provides that so i really think that this story pokes a lot of holes in that national narrative we have around undocumented workers and families yeah i Think back to uh, a comment that I made earlier about the other story of the the narrative being about a long, uh, drawn out, maybe not drawn out, it's not the right word, but a, the long form narrative is about the anticipation of what is the, the story or what is the, the meaning at the end of this. I think our politics now are also about that. It's less about the investing now for something in the future. So in investing in social services will out will provide an outcome of a better, healthier, more educated society in the future, as opposed to bills that are about instantaneous work action results that happen now. 
And I think that the American dream is about, you know, being able to do something for yourself moving forward and having the support structures that are built in to provide you opportunities and access to that. I don't know if we have have thought through a long-term perspective of cutting this and reducing that and removing X and Y and Z, how much it is a detriment to the future, to the education, to the economy, to the, the value of what our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren will be able to either be able to accomplish or how that dream is, is, is less than, than it used to be, because we are more about what is going to make the headline today, what can be tweeted out now and become much more in the zeitgeist, as opposed to a bill that has really long legs to it that can support like DACA, Mm -hmm. like, um, affordable healthcare and, and other things that they make small little micro adjustments that move the future into providing for a larger community. Helping one person doesn't mean that it's only that one person, that one person goes on to help dozens and thousands and millions of more people. Nicely put. Final thought was, I love these two storytellers. Yeah. I love so many of our storytellers, but these two have a place in my heart that yeah yeah i think they're just so willing to share when liz and i had listened to these um before the the recording i had asked her so what happened what what's what's the rest of what where's part two to this i want to know what happened to her experience what was college like for her did she struggle did she overcome this um how are her parents doing? Like, I, I want to know more the, the mm-hmm. deep dive into this. You need to have another button of, you know, like, and then what happened? Part two, <laughs> where is she now? What 10 years later, 20 years later, what, what has happened? Um, I, I imagine that, you know, of course she graduated and made her parents proud, um, went on to do something pretty remarkable and spectacular law school, law school. Jeez, louise yes law school um supporting her parents supporting her parents her parents are probably super proud yeah mm-hmm. yeah jp i had the pleasure of running into her on the sidewalk really? <laughs> yeah it was during the pandemic and it was at a time when i was walking the neighborhoods a lot <laughs> And I randomly ran into her and she had completed law school and was going to pass the bar and had started a family and remembered, you know, sharing this story with us. She actually felt a little embarrassed about her emotions, which mm-hmm. I can understand, you know, as the person who was being so vulnerable to your point, Liz, but really, wow, for the rest of us, what a gift she gave. Before we head out today, um, we encourage you to check out WVLP's full schedule of shows at WVLP.org. We highly recommend Morning Black, which airs live every Saturday morning at 8 a.m. Morning Black stands for Building Leaders and Cultural Knowledge, and they focus on the concerns and issues that impact underrepresented communities of color, especially the African-American community here in Northwest Indiana. So, JP, take it away. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. And thanks again to our sponsors, Asana Yoga Center at asanacenter.com and Roots Market Cafe at rootsmarketcafe.com. Both are open for business at their locations downtown Lincoln Way. Visit their websites and learn more. We here at the Welcome Project Radio love to support our local businesses. And thanks to Michael and Kelly Marakna, who believe in supporting diversity, learning, and growth. You can find The Welcome Project online at welcomeproject.valpo.edu and wherever you get your podcasts.